cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risk.net's podcast on quant finance. This is Mauro Cesar, and today I have the pleasure to talk to one of the most prolific quants and contributors to the cutting section of Risk, Chris Kenyon. Global Head of Quant Innovation and Global Head of XVA Modeling MUFG. Hi, Chris. Great to have you back after two, three and a half years, actually. And uh, thanks very much for visiting us today uh, and talk about your research. You're welcome. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. Over the years, you have published extensively on the modeling of uh, counterparty risk and valuation adjustments. Uh, Your latest paper uh, with us is no different. It tackles a topic that had received much attention in the past, uh, the wrong way risk for credit valuation adjustment, but you look at it through new lenses, so to speak. Uh, this is co-authored with uh, Murat Berawi and Benjamin Ponset, and it's titled Data-Driven Wrong Way Risk for CVA and F- FVA. I should say that data-driven here doesn't refer to machine learning, as the, terms, uh, uh, the term often suggests, uh, but... To start, could we just recap briefly what uh, wrong-way risk is and why it would be a bad idea to neglect it? So wrong-way risk is the chance that exposure increases when the probability of default also increases. So obviously, if you've got that sort of correlation, you should be aware of it. And right-way risk is the opposite. Now, under SACVA regulations for capital, uh, it is very strongly suggested to include it in your model. Otherwise, there is the statement that there may be an increase in your capital multiplier. Now, this uh, economic risk is often sort of an an addition to whatever is being done in the standard CVA setup. And so how do you approach the problem of assessing uh, wrong way risk here? So first of all, we did the, op- the obvious. We looked at the literature to see what everybody else had done. And we realized that the key point was calibration. So what hedging instruments are available? And the answer was basically nothing. So then we just had a look at the equations and realized we could just rewrite them slightly and drive everything from historical market data. And then we had a look at what it, what was the signal to noise ratio in the historical data and what sort of wrong way risks were observable. And we realized that there were basically three types of crises which would create uh, or we could use for scenario expansion to cover what was likely to happen in different types of crises. So you introduced a few novelties in, in, in this approach. Well, can you can you summarize them for them for, for us? Well, first of all, we don't use a model. We simply rewrite equations into convenient forms that can be estimated from historical data. Then we change the goalposts. So we changed the definition of wrong-way risk to reflect the data that was actually available. So, for example, we have volatilities of expected default probabilities from historical record because the only available options on CDS spreads are less than one year. 
and so that's not very useful if you need to go out 10 or 20 years. And then after changing the definition to reflect what you can actually do, uh, we saw that this actually reveals the term structure of the wrong-way risk correlation. So you can have both wrong-way risk and right-way risk in the same netting set, just at different points on the term structure. So a trade may appear to have zero wrong-way risk, but only because it's got opposite contributions at different points in the term structure. So obviously this can aid when you want to start uh, cancelling it out. I see. So what are the standard approaches for uh, wrong with risk? And so you're saying that given the lack of hedging instruments, it's difficult to uh, build a, a market model for it. Well, this, the standard approach is just to say, uh, I've got a driving factor for credit risk and I've got a driving factor for interest rate risk. Let's stick a correlation between the two. And yes, you will get wrong-way risk or right-way risk out of it. But often in those sort of approaches, you don't put in a term structure because, you know, you're, you're guessing on the parameter. So, you know, guessing a whole term structure seems, you know, adding complexity for no, for no value. So to understand the, um, the size and the relevance of it, in terms of size, how does it uh, compare to the CVA term that it's associated with? So in the paper, we looked at interest rate swaps and for regulatory CVA, so exposure and uh, credit risk, it was about 5%. Looking at the accounting setup where you have three-way wrong-way risk between exposure, credit, and funding, it could be up to about 10% for interest rate swaps. So this is very, very instrument dependent and very, very counterparty dependent. So your mileage will vary. Mm -hmm. I see, but yeah, uh, very sizable it can be. Um, so interesting, very important to, to, to get this right. Um, I would like to change topic slightly now. Um, so last year, you published with Morad, your uh, co-author, a paper in which you introduced climate change valuation adjustment. Uh, it, it was a framework that would account for physical and transition risk, so the, both big aspects of uh, related to, to climate change. Uh, could you explain the concept of uh, CCVA and uh, uh, what you found in that paper? So the observation started again by looking at data and seeing that the liquid CDS market, at best, trades only out to 10 years, although most of the liquidity is at the five-year point. So between the end of the liquid instruments and the end of your portfolio, you've got a gap. And what we realized was that climate change provides long-term information either on the end points when we're talking about physical risk or on transitions when we're talking about specific companies. And so that information for appropriate counterparties can be factored in uh, very usefully. So climate change provides the longer term information to complement the liquid market that only exists out to five to 10 years. Mm, I, see, I see. So, what are the conclusions of uh, of that work? 
And uh, what is the impact that uh, CCVA could have on, on a price of a derivative? So we looked at what, for the physical risk, we looked at something which we were trying to make as benign as possible. So default at the, or high probability of default at the end of the century, and the slowest uh, continuous approach, uh, i.e. a uh, linear, uh, linearly increasing hazard rate. And on uh, a 20-year interest rate swap, this was a, about a 10% increase when looking at CVA and FVA. So this was physical risk. Hmm. Now, if your CVA is on proxy curves, then you're not hedging counterparty default at all. You're hedging credit spread risk. So you would see effects uh, on shorter derivatives as well. Hmm, I see. And in terms of default rate, so you, you came up with conclusions on that and numbers. Well, what can you tell us about that? So what we, what we said was, okay, high probability of default at the end of the century for counterparties that are subject to that type of physical risk. And we know their CDS spread at five years or 10 years and just connect those two with a straight line as the you know, least informative assumption and see how that changes uh, the default probabilities. And, you know, it can be quite significant. And it becomes, it's, it's also nonlinear in terms of the effect. So it's much more important for longer dated uh, trades than it is for shorter dated trades. Although, it, although in both cases, we're talking fairly long dated. So 10 years plus. I see. And so th that was last year. Uh, since then, uh, this area of research made some progress, but I understand mostly thanks to you and your co-authors. Could you, could you talk us through uh, what happened since? Well, in research, let me contrast buy side and sell side. So buy side, as you probably know, uh, there's a lot of research and a lot of activity from asset managers. Sell side, as you say, there's a lot less. And we've made kind of two steps. One was driven by looking at project finance deals. And so we came up with the carbon equivalence principle, which basically says that the carbon flows caused or enabled by a financial product should be attached to the product to the financial product so you can see what sort of footprint you're either creating or enabling so that was one step and then we applied that to project finance and the results were really quite striking because you do the analysis you realize oh certain types of assets may become stranded Therefore, that changes the recovery rate. Therefore, that changes the funding spread. Therefore, the project is not viable unless you change the game, unless you move the goalposts. So, for example, adding negative emissions technology as a second project within the first project. And then you say, well, this is getting expensive. So you then say, OK, how can I achieve financial net zero not simply carbon net zero by creating extra 
carbon capture, which you can then sell at a profit. So what it illustrates is that if you take the carbon flows into consideration, you have to redesign your projects. So that was the first thing that we did. The second was starting from the Net Zero Banking Alliance. So members of that say that they will achieve carbon net zero in their portfolios, roughly speaking, by 2050. Hmm. So in order to achieve that, you need to change the deals you're winning and losing. So you need to think about what's the carbon footprint of your portfolio. And we introduced a precise valuation method in the CO2 equivalent valuation adjustment, and then tried it on transportation counterparties like uh, aircraft or airlines and shipping. And it's quite significant there. I see. But do you, do you think that is a decision for the bank to take, or do you think some regulation should come in place to impose those decisions? So uh, banks act out of economic self-interest. If carbon becomes expensive and so produces risk to the portfolio, then that's something to avoid whether there are regulations or not. Mm. Now, the regulators have published in this area and have generally stated that it's very difficult and they're not clear on what they should be doing yet. So I think they may be waiting for some sort of consensus to appear, although, you know, you should ask them. <laughs> <laughs> um, in another one of your recent works, uh, I, I know you criticised the labels green and ESG as inadequate. Uh, wh why is that? So suppose you, uh, that you have a bank that's a member of the Net Zero Banking Alliance and you want to achieve uh, zero or net zero carbon in your uh, portfolio footprint, at a minimum, you need to be able to do arithmetic. So like 100 minus 100 equals zero. Um, both green and ESG do not support even arithmetic. So, you know, it's a bit difficult to see how they help. So you're saying you're criticizing them in conjunction, so as a pair of concepts, or even individually? Even individually. So I'm criticizing them against the criteria of wanting to achieve carbon net zero for a bank portfolio hmm. as a member of the Net Zero Banking Alliance. For that objective, it's difficult to see how they can be used, given that they don't support arithmetic. And so I know you propose a redesign of ESG, of the classification of ESG. How, how, how would that work? Well, it's not really a redesign. It's, it's basically uh, just looking at what is already there and applying the carbon equivalence principle, saying, look, these are the carbon flows. Let's include these as a second term sheet. And then, you know, we can apply all the usual quant machinery when, w w as soon as the, the uh, flows are visible. And so you, you mentioned earlier that uh, there's not much literature on, on the sales side on, on this topic. 
and uh, there is there is quite a bit on on, on the buy side comparably uh, do you think the two are somewhat uh, in the position of help each other um, what what is the literature on the on the buy side that you're aware of that might help uh, your case so i would say there's two strands one is around carbon beaters and things like that and uh, garcia gonzalo is one author to watch there and also gurgen apart from that uh, in asset management of physical assets like hydro or forests there's a lot of work on risk and multi-stage portfolio optimization so ron carley is one author in that area wang zhu are also authors to watch there I see, I see. Chris, um, thanks very much for this. It was very, very interesting talking to you. And uh, I hope to, to see soon the progress of uh, all the research you're, you're doing on, on this. Thanks very much for the invitation. And thanks, for everybody, for listening. <laughs>